0: Over the next number of Sunday nights, not really quite sure how many, how long is a piece of string, one of those sort of situations, um, I'd like to pick up on um, some stuff that we did actually back in 2001, 2002, which you will all immediately recall, no doubt, um, because back then we were doing um, a bit of a series on, oh, there's Susanna and Peter, hi, back from honeymoon, good to see the both of you, welcome back, you're looking terribly well, um, back in 2001, 2002, we uh, were looking at Samuel, Saul, and David. We did a bit of a series uh, in the Old Testament and that, and never really got much into looking at David. Um, and I'd, I'd quite like to pick some of that up again, and in the Sunday evenings that lie ahead, to begin to unpack some of the, the story of David, which you may think you're very familiar with, and you may be very familiar with. But from which there's always so much to learn. So, this evening, what I'd like to do is just to set a little bit of background. Uh, Most of what we have to look at this evening comes from 1 Samuel, so you might like to turn to that, um, and particularly 1 Samuel chapter 8. And um, what I have to say is really under the title this evening of Time for a Change in Leadership. Time for a Change in Leadership. You could be forgiven with a title like that, thinking I was about to talk about the Lib Dem conference, which starts tomorrow. Will Ming continue to lead by the end of this week? Or the Labour conference that comes up next, which is going to be a bit of a stormer, I suspect. Unusually this year in the party conference season, it won't be the Tories engaging in what Boris Johnson famously recently referred to as a form of Papua New Guinea-style cannibalism or chief killing. And in case the ambassador of Papua New Guinea happens to be listening on her MP3 player to a sermon from Windsor, let me say that the views of Boris Johnson do not reflect the views of Windsor Baptist Church. There's nothing that really quite brings out the knives like um, a leadership challenge or a leadership change, whether it's the stories of ancient Rome or Papua New Guinea or British politics. uh, Political leadership and military leadership is a precarious occupation for years, once the people of Israel had uh, crossed the Jordan and moved into the Promised Land, um, they lived under the rule of tribal and family leaders, with Joshua leading the way initially, and then various judges being raised up at different times under, uh, under different circumstances when there were periods of particular crisis and need. And eventually, Samuel was raised up, who acts very much. In a kind of threefold role within Israel. I think arguably the greatest figure in Israel from the time of Moses uh, until the time of David. And he acts as a prophet, bringing God's word, speaking God's word. We see the way in which God speaks to him and him to the people. We see him uh, operating as a priest, uh, as at the core of religious worship and sacrifice. And we see him acting essentially also as a judge of Israel. He brings together all three of these kinds of rules, which is not insignificant in itself. But Samuel finds himself caught at a certain stage in his life in one of those moments of change in history, and there's nothing he can do about it. One of those moments of change when the desire for change seems to cause a major shift in the landscape of a people. Without the necessity of violence or without the necessity of bloodshed. We've had lots of recent examples of this in recent history. I think of what happened in Ukraine uh, some years ago. I think of what's happening in Mexico at the minute. I'm not quite sure how all that's going to pan out. But there can come a point where change is inevitable. And you may find it very difficult sometimes to sort out, well, how did it start? Or where was the engine of it? Or what drove it? But it just becomes inevitable. And this is the case for Samuel. um, Particularly in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And the trigger on this occasion. Is not that people are tired of Samuel. But they see that Samuel is installing his sons as judges over Israel. And they know as Samuel also knows that his sons are essentially corrupt. And the people are not prepared to put up. ...with their leadership or their authority over them. They have no respect for them. They have no desire to be led by them. And much as they love Samuel and respect him... ...a moment of change has arrived. Look at verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's on page 278 of the copies of the Bible in the pew. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. Verse 3, his sons did not walk in his ways... They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And what happens next is an interesting three-way conversation which you get to listen into. The leaders are speaking to Samuel. They're saying we want a different regime put in place. Samuel is talking to God and he's disturbed and upset about this call for a king. He sees this as a departure from the kind of prophetic leadership um, which was envisaged under uh, a theocracy, the, the rule of God. And then Samuel has to come back and speak to the leaders. And essentially the message that God gives to Samuel is tell them, yes, they're going to get a king. And uh, verse 21, 22 of the end of 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone has to go back to his own town. And Samuel himself is caught up at this moment, probably quite unexpectedly really, in a moment of Massive change in the history of God's people. Saul is appointed. Saul comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, You may, if you can think back that far, remember some of the significance of this at the end of the book uh, of Judges. There's the account of what happens between the tribes. There's a man who comes uh, from the region of Bethel a Levite, and he comes down through to the Bethlehem kind of region in Judah to collect his concubine who had run away. He's traveling back home north, and to get home he has to pass through the lands of the tribe of Benjamin. And he stops at a place called Gibeah. And that night, while he's staying there, many of the men of the city gather around the house in which he is staying, not having initially offered him hospitality, and ask the person who owns the house to throw him out so that they can have sex with him. Um, and the owner of the house won't do that. And eventually the man himself pushes his concubine out. And essentially she is gang raped and killed. And this happens amongst the people of Israel. In, in Benjamin and Gebeah. And he then takes the body, the carcass home. And awful and all as this sounds. He chops it up into 12 pieces. Sends it off around the tribes of Israel. And says a shameful thing has happened in Israel. And what then happens is that the, nation, the tribes gather together. And because Benjamin, as a tribe, will not repudiate nor hand over the people who were responsible for this crime, then the people of Judah and the others have to lead uh, an army against them. And thousands of people of Benjamin are slaughtered. Thousands of them. And that's all fairly recent history. Not all that long before Samuel uh, comes to the position of leadership that God had appointed for him. And the significant thing is that when... Uh, Samuel is told to appoint a king. The king comes from Benjamin. What's more, he comes from the very town that was at the heart of what was essentially a civil war within Israel. Very interesting. So that the man that God chooses comes from the place of shame and disgrace in Israel. And it's like a kind of gesture of reconciliation that God is affecting amongst his people. It's a gesture of the mercy and the grace of God that that's where he goes to find a king to lead the whole of Israel. And it's a measure of the reconciliation that takes place that the people of Israel ultimately recognize Saul as their king. So what is happening at this particular moment in time is huge. It distresses Samuel, this whole looking for a king. He sees this as nothing but bad news in the long term. It probably shocks him in some ways that the king comes from Benjamin and from the very place which was the center of such brutality and the cause of so much death in Israel. And he appoints him as king and gives him all the help and all the advice that he could possibly want. When you think of Saul as a king in Israel, one of the things you've got to dispense with is the idea of a king with a big palace and a standing army and an infrastructure of government. Israel wasn't really like that at this stage. It was still essentially tribes operating within their groups. And Saul becomes, if you like, a kind of chieftain, a head chieftain, a federal head of the people at this time. But he doesn't have all the trappings of kingship that we're later going to see under David. He doesn't have huge palaces. He doesn't have this kind of standing army. He doesn't have a taxation infrastructure and all the rest of it. It's much more basic than that at this particular time. And we get the impression from 1 Samuel chapter 12 that while Saul was effective as a leader of Israel at this time, Samuel was never really reconciled to the whole king business. In Samuel's farewell speech, which is there in 1 Samuel chapter 12, um, he's still going on about this. He's still disturbed about this uh, and unhappy about it and unhappy in a sense too that God has accepted it and that God's going to allow the situation to continue. But Saul... Despite his physical stature, and apparently he was a hugely impressive individual physically, Saul was a very insecure person. Maybe it was part of his Benjamite heritage. Maybe he was never really completely sure that the people trusted him or accepted him because of the history of the place from which he came. We're not entirely sure. But his insecurity manifests itself in a string of bad decisions that he makes. And when you turn over to 1 Samuel 15 and 16, you come to the key passage in the book of Samuel that talks about the next big change in Israel, the leadership change that is going to occur when Saul is rejected and David is anointed. In a nutshell, here's what happens in chapter 15. And you'll be able to follow down through this as you look at the text. Saul is instructed to go and to attack the Amalekites. He's also instructed, and whatever you think about this, this is the way it worked, um, to make sure that he lays waste to everything. He's to spare nothing. But what actually happens is he goes up and he attacks the Amalekites and Saul allows the soldiers to keep the sheep and the cattle and all the things that seem to be of worth to them. And he himself takes captive the king, King Agag. Now The whole thing is a very bloody episode. There's no question about that. But I think it's made all the more disgraceful, uh, all the more shameful, if you like, in Israel by the fact that it ceased to be simply an exercise of justice or judgment and it became an exercise in plunder and uh, self-satisfaction. So they go up, the instruction is to destroy and the reason for the destruction has to do with judgment but they turn that into an opportunity to accumulate wealth. So they destroy what they don't like and they keep everything that they do like. Completely contrary to the command of God. And Samuel is sent to challenge Saul about this. And Samuel is told by God in verse 12 there that one of the things that Saul is now doing is setting up a monument in his own honour. And everything about the insecurity of this man is manifest in the decisions he makes and the actions that he takes. Samuel comes to him, and before any conversation really gets going, Saul tries to deceive Samuel. I have done everything that the Lord commanded, verse 13. And even after he's challenged directly by Samuel, who has complete insight into exactly what has been going on here, in verse 20, again stupidly, he tries to argue that he did everything he was supposed to do. He is completely blind. To his disobedience. He's completely blind to the fact that he is, above all else, setting himself up as the key person in Israel. Really, in a sense, undermining God and undermining God's authority among the people. And in verses 22 and verse 23 of First Samuel chapter 15, you have the key passage. Samuel replies to Saul. Um, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And what happens is that while uh, Samuel agrees to stay and... Uh, allows Saul to save some face in front of the people. Nevertheless, he publicly humiliates him by taking Saul's prized possession and destroying it. And verse 35 of 1 Samuel chapter 15 says it all, Until the day Samuel died, he did not go up to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. It's in this context that Israel is ready for a change of leadership, and it's in this context that a totally unknown individual appears on the pages of history. He has a rich pedigree as it happens. You can read about that if you want the summary of it in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. But this guy, David, is largely unknown. He's the youngest of a family and a shepherd boy. But he is the one God has chosen and the one who will take the nation to a whole new level. A little subterfuge is necessary on Samuel's part to get David anointed. And I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about that kind of thing in the weeks ahead. But basically what happens in chapter 16 is that the Lord says to Samuel, it's time to go and anoint a new king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy, with a fine appearance and handsome features. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And Samuel then went to Ramah. That's as far as I want to go this evening with the story of David. I know we've hardly started. We've just met him on the pages of Scripture. But the story of David begins at a very important point in the history of God's people, when there is a need for a change of leadership. And there are a couple of lessons I think we can learn from this point of Israel's history. The first lesson is quite simply this, that the kingdom is greater than any individual. The kingdom is greater than any individual, and that is true of the kingdom of God today. If you haven't heard a statement like that or a form of that statement being made then you probably haven't been listening too much to the news or reading the papers which sometimes isn't a bad thing. Part of the whole tussle in politics at the minute particularly within the Labour Party seems to be about whether the party has a future with Tony Blair or a better future without him. Those who argue that they have a historic third term and it was entirely due to Tony Blair's leadership are matched by those who argue that if Gordon Brown hadn't been at a side constantly in the last election, it would have been a very different outcome. There are those who argue that without a vision of, the vision of Tony Blair, new Labour would never have existed, and those who argue that until he goes, the party will never be truly Labour again. The relationship of the balance between the significance of a leader and a party or an organisation or a kingdom is very much debated. One thing is absolutely clear from the brief survey of the background to David's anointing is very clear. And that is that in the kingdom of God, no individual is indispensable. The kingdom is greater than any individual or any leader. It's remarkable how often as Christians we don't understand that. The cult of the leader, even in evangelical circles still seems to be alive and well. Certainly judging by the junk mail I get on a fairly regular basis. And one of the things I would say to you this evening is quite simply this. Don't ever let your faith in God be hanging on the basis of a leader. Don't hang around organizations or churches in which the cult of the leader thrives and everything depends On the leader. You're wasting your time. It's not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God is greater than any individual, and any church or Christian organization based around an individual will soon discover that the game is already up and you'd be much wiser to move on. I know God raises up people. I know God raises up leaders within churches and within organizations and gifts some tremendously for particular moments. But that's all he does. The kingdom is not dependent on individuals and it is not dependent on the leadership of any individual within a church or within an organization. I know that it's frustrating not being able to see God. I understand that. And I know there's nobody here who would get round that problem by making idols. You wouldn't dream of it, I understand that. But don't go putting people in his place. Keep your eyes fixed on God, not merely on his representatives, because they're only human and they're fallible and they're riddled with insecurities and they're riddled with problems themselves. And ultimately their purpose is there to help you see God more clearly not to see your need of them and your dependence on them. And any individual who thinks that he or she is really secure and can play fast and loose with God's commands should think again. Saul didn't get off with it. I won't get off with it. And neither will you. Fearing the Lord is the wise thing to do. And keeping our eyes fixed on him rather than people is absolutely critical. I was thinking about the passage in Hebrews chapter 12 in this context. And in Hebrews chapter 12, in verses 14 to 17, the writer of Hebrews, it's on page 1211 of the copies of the Bible in the pew. The writer says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. And later on in the passage, the contrast is drawn between the mountain to which the people of God came to in the Old Testament and all the fear associated with that, and the way in which we as Christians come to Jesus Christ, and the lack of fear associated with that, which is a great thing, and it's given there for encouragement. In verse 23, he's talking about how you've come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. But see to it, that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we, if we turn away, escape. And I've just lost my place there. Sorry about that. From him who warns us from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And the truth is, and if you read the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, you'll see the evidence of this. That even in the life of the church. God makes it very clear. Time and again. Generation after generation. That the kingdom of God is greater than any individual or any leader. And your responsibility is to seek to follow after God. Not to follow after people. However impressive or helpful they may be. And your responsibility is to follow after God. And keep his commands. Because none of us are indispensable. Second thing that this point of Israel's history uh, speaks to me about is that the kingdom of God needs people who are faithful and courageous. I'm very struck by Samuel's honest expression of fear in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and yet his uh, 16 sorry and yet his willingness to obey. The Lord said to Samuel, "How long will you mourn? I have rejected Saul as king. Fill your horn with all and be in your way." But Samuel said, "How can I go? Saul will hear about it and will kill me. There's no doubt that the relationship between these two men was hugely strained. If word got out to Saul that Samuel was anointing another king, there is no doubt that Saul would have killed him to try and stop the process. Such was the level of insecurity of this man. A level of insecurity which only gets worse once David comes on the scene. But Saul is willing to do it. Sorry, Samuel is willing to do it. He is willing to be faithful to what God has called him to do, despite the real danger to his own life. My guess is, we don't really know the answer to this, but the the, the comment there about the elders of Bethlehem meeting Samuel and being terrified is a very interesting one. We don't exactly know why they were terrified. I mean, Samuel himself wasn't any great threat. But the assumption may well be that Samuel, when he appears... In the territory, having come through the territory of Saul, people in Judah would think that Samuel and Saul had patched up their differences. And that maybe Samuel was now coming as Saul's envoy and would be very afraid because Saul was becoming unpredictable in his leadership and in the exercise of his authority. Whatever. The point is that Samuel is prepared to go and to do what God asks him to do even at the risk of his own life. He is at this point in his life A great model of faithfulness and teaches us that faithfulness sometimes requires courage. We think of the courageous people in the kingdom of God as very often being the pioneers. The people who go into new situations, dangerous situations with the gospel. They're the ones we think of as being the ones who need to be courageous in the kingdom of God. The people who are way out in front. But often that's not the case. Often you need courage just to be faithful. I think of the pressure on young people in school situations, university situations, the peer pressure. Just to be faithful to what you know, to what you believe, requires courage if you're the only one standing in that position. Sometimes just to be ordinary as a Christian, faithful to Christian moral principles, or faithful to the word of God, requires courage because you find yourself in a minority. I think that's not only the case now, but increasingly going to be the case in the days ahead. The pressures to conform to liberal standards increases as liberal standards become enshrined in law. Many of us will need courage just to be ordinary, faithful Christians. And Samuel is a great illustration of this and a great example for us. Of someone who was willing to be faithful And do what God had called him to do, even at the risk of his own life. Jesus understood that this would be an issue for his people. And in John chapter 17, when he's praying for his disciples, here is how he prays. I have given them your word, he says to his father, and the world has hated them for it. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Because Jesus has just said to his disciples, I've told you all these things in chapter 16, that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Jesus was aware of the risk to the disciples of simply being faithful. It requires courage just to be faithful. And I would say to you this evening, okay, you're not in a leadership role like Samuel was. None of us hold that kind of position in terms of, if you like, the kingdom of God. But don't underestimate the challenge that lies ahead for you. To simply fulfill your calling to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. But don't be afraid of it. There are many others who have gone before you, and been faithful, and been courageous, and God has honoured that. So as we think about the change in leadership that was coming, and the emerging of David onto the scene, and the whole story of David, that moment in history, that point in time, creates a number of things for us to think about. Opportunities to meditate on, and to make sure that we have our own lives in our own day and generation in line with the way God would choose for us to live and want for us to live as his people.